0: Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at how Formula One teams get to the root cause of the problems with their cars and asking, can we use similar methods to uncover what truly lies beneath some of the biggest problems we face in our own daily lives? Welcome back brand new Kibbe Life lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that that's a failure. Hello everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast with me, Mark Priestley. Thank you so much for joining wherever you are in the world, however it is you're listening and whatever it is you're up to whilst listening to this. I genuinely appreciate every single one of you. I haven't asked this for a while. I don't ask very much of you, but if you can spare a moment to just leave me a like, a follow, a subscribe, wherever it is you're listening or watching this podcast, it would make a huge difference to me. If you can spare a moment to leave me a very quick, just a few words of review and a rating in the Apple podcast store that makes a massive difference to how this podcast is received and how far it's pushed So, how many new people we can get it to. And that is the very mission to help as many people through my experience in Formula One as we can. Any help like that would be huge and massively appreciated. Share it, tell your friends, tag me if you share it on social. I will always do my best to give you a shout out, to say thank you, just a a nod of appreciation for your commitment to helping this podcast grow. Now this week, it's Sunday night as I record this. Today was the very first Grand Prix of the season the very first Grand Prix of a much-anticipated 2023. Uh, Now, if you haven't yet seen the... I mean, now, come on, you've all seen it by now. We know now that Max Verstappen and, indeed, Red Bull were pretty dominant. They were very dominant, in fact. It's what was suspected after pre-season testing but there was a number of intriguing storylines that may have just thrown a cat amongst the pigeons. But as it turned out, it was almost business as usual. It was Max Verstappen disappearing into the distance and then his teammate Sergio Perez following up very closely behind with not really too much in the way of challenge outside of that team. But... Further back down the grid, oh, big shout out to Fernando Alonso, by the way. Incredible results for him and for the Aston Martin team. I'm so pleased for those guys, uh, so pleased for a team that have, for many years, had to struggle on smaller budgets than many. Uh, They've had to really get the most out of being economic with what budget and what funds they had. And the new Formula One with this slightly more level playing field, with the cost-capped environment that we now operate in, are really starting to see results. And what happened today with Fernando Alonso and that Aston Martin car, I think, was just... Kind of heartwarming for everybody. I know many of those people. I know what it will have meant to them. Uh, It's also great for Fernando. Fernando's had a career littered with what seemed like poor decisions, going to the wrong team at the wrong time. He's an incredibly talented driver who could have had many more world championships than the two that he already has. And um, I'm really pleased for him that he's now found himself in a car that's taken a giant step forward. And who knows where this could lead. Yes, things look like it was fairly dominant on day one, but it is just day one. On a circuit where there's been lots of testing and that will ebb and flow as the season goes on. We go to new places, new types of track, and each of these cars will start to come into their own on different days, and I can't wait. I'm really excited for that. Further back down the grid, though, we have seen a number of teams... Uh, with not quite the successful day that Red Bull or Aston Martin had. Uh, And I want to get back to McLaren. Let's take McLaren as another example, Okay, McLaren had a very difficult weekend. And I don't want to focus too much on them. They've got all manner of struggles. It's definitely not where me, they, or anybody who's a McLaren fan of any description would have wanted them to be. But I wanted to use them as a bit of an example. And this doesn't have to be McLaren. It could be anybody who's struggling With how Formula One teams deal with the problems, the technical problems on their cars. What I mean by that is when a car is going over the Grand Prix weekend and it might have an issue, as in a handling issue, the driver might report something in his debrief or over the radio to the team, and then the team, of course, have a number of tools available to them, both in terms of systems on the car, interchangeable parts setup options that can hopefully dial out those issues and and bring the car into a setup window that that works for the driver. That's what everybody's goal is up and down the pit lane over the course of a Grand Prix weekend. But the way they do that is quite systematic. The car goes out. Of course, they're collecting a huge amount of data. Uh, The driver also sat behind the wheel is gathering his thoughts, is making mental notes as he goes round. And when that car comes in from the session, There's a whole debrief or download of the data, both the physical data and also the comments from the driver, the comments from the race engineers. There's footage, onboard footage and offboard footage. There's all manner of things that they can then analyze to find out exactly what the car's doing, both good and bad. Now, when there's something wrong, if a driver has a problem, let's say a driver has too much oversteer, or in the case of McLaren that they've suffered with over the course of this weekend, struggling to get traction down, Uh, coming out of slow corners, they're really struggling to put the power down without spinning the rear wheels. There's a traction problem. Now what that means is they overheat the rear tyres as they spin them up, as they start to put the power down coming out of corners. Um, They start to wear tyres more quickly. And the upshot is that over a race stint particularly, they wear their tyres out. They degrade their tyres way more quickly than they should be doing. And of course, we know how that massively impacts the overall race time. So if a driver's reporting that he's got difficulties with traction and he can't get the power down, when he hits the throttle, he's just spinning the rear wheels up. There's a number of things that the team can then look at to try and address that. Now, they might look at things like, um, is that traction problem coming from a sort of electronic system? Is the power delivery from the power unit too aggressive? And can they soften that off? Can they make changes to the electronically controlled hydraulic diff that will also help with that drive out of the corners? Those are sort of system cha- system changes, tweaks to a dial on the steering wheel, for example, or a line of code in the software. Of course, there's a whole bunch of mechanical systems they can change. It may be that they might want to think about rear ride heights. They might want to think about softening rear springs so that as you punch out of a corner, you want a little bit more weight transfer to squat down at the rear, putting more load on the rear tyres and giving them a little bit more bite to hopefully improve that traction. There could be things like anti-roll bars that are causing the car to either roll too much or not roll enough. Rear ride heights could also be an issue. There's a whole manner of different things. Aerodynamic, if the problem is more high speed, coming out of corners. Um, The aerodynamic load on the rear tyres might not be enough. So there's a whole manner of tools and systems that can be tweaked and changed to try and address the symptom of... Struggling with rear traction, struggling to get the power down out of corners. But the point is that when you look at that problem, that symptom, getting power down is tricky. That idea that the rear wheels are spinning up when you hit the rear hit the throttle, that's a, a symptom. That's a problem that the driver's experiencing. Now Over a race weekend, and certainly during a session when time is against you, there's limited resource available, you certainly can't redesign the car in that time frame. So you're looking at what tools you have available to you to address that symptom, to deal with that symptom. So you're looking at those problems or those solutions that I've just talked about and trying to find the one that you think will will solve the problem in the best way without causing too many other negative knock-on side effects. And of course, the driver goes back out and they check it, they try it again, and they come back in with some more feedback, which could be that it solved it. It could be that it's caused something else now. There's another problem that wasn't there before. It may be that it hasn't changed anything at all. And you have to go back to the drawing board and try another one of those solutions. But my point is that what you're doing over the course of that session, and even over the course of a Grand Prix weekend, is you're dealing with the symptoms. You're treating the symptoms that the driver's experiencing. And the way that a Formula One team looks at that problem after the race weekend, what McLaren will be doing after they've gone away from Bahrain over the next few days, is they'll be crunching the numbers. They'll be going into even greater depth in terms of their debriefs. They will be looking at that data and analysing it with a really deep dive into what lies beneath all of those problems. They'll be looking at the changes they made over a Grand Prix weekend, and then after they made the changes, they'll go into the data from the following session or the following runs to analyse what happened, what changed as a result of the changes that they made. Did it work? Did it work a little bit? Did it have knock-on effects, side effects? Did it not work? There's a huge picture that they can build up when they go into a deep dive to try and uncover what they did over a race weekend and what impact it had, whether it was the right decisions, whether it was the right directions to go in, or now they have more time and they can get the car back to base. They've got the full resource of the factory, less time pressure on them to go through this stuff in an even deeper way. Can they find what really lies at the cause of those symptoms? And what I mean by that is, Those symptoms that we talked about, the idea of something that manifests itself in the car, like struggling for reattraction, for example, those are symptoms. But quite often, there's an underlying cause. That's not the cause of the problem. The reattraction problem is a symptom. And quite often, we have to delve really quite deep into that car, into that technical solution, maybe even go into the design philosophy of that car, and ask ourselves, is there some underlying fundamental issue that's then manifesting itself in this rear traction problem? Of course, no one wants to hear that, because if that is the case, you could be into some sort of conceptual change, a fundamental design problem that's baked into your car that, even if you can fix it, might take a long time, a lot of lead time, a lot of resource. In today's Formula One, that's tricky. But if you don't go back and try and really delve deep to find the source of the problem, the underlying fundamental issue that's causing the symptom that the driver is experiencing, you will forever be just chasing the symptom around over a race weekend. It will continue to rear its ugly head at another racetrack. It may rear its head in a slightly different way on a different racetrack as well. But the point is, you're never going to fix it. Treating the symptom is a little bit like putting a Band-Aid on something. It's a Band-Aid solution. It's the only one we have when the the clock's ticking down as a session goes on, changing anti-roll bars or changing springs, ride heights, system tweaks. Those kind of things are exactly what we have available to us. We can't redesign the car during a session. But once we delve deep, once we have that deep dive into finding the source of the problem, that's when we might uncover something that, yes, could well be scary. It could be a big problem, much more significant than the ones you've been treating all weekend with your setup changes. But if you don't address that fundamental problem, if that's what you've got, you will never, ever get to the heart of that problem. You will forever be experiencing a series of symptoms that come to the surface as you start to push that car through a Grand Prix weekend. And the reason that I thought this was interesting, as I was thinking about this today, I was looking at McLaren and their predicament over the course of the weekend, speaking to some of the people, my friends and and former colleagues at the team, I know they've got some more fundamental problems. They already know about many of them, but they will, of course, spend the next few days delving even deeper into what happened this weekend using all of that data all of that knowledge and learning that's been collected even though it was a disastrous grand prix weekend of course they were able to collect a huge amount of data they learned a massive amount about that car and now they have the luxury of a little bit more time a little bit more resource available to them they can go away and have a deep dive and try to uncover what lies at the source of those problems the reason as i say that this is interesting is because as i was watching this play out it made me think about a person that I was helping last year. I was mentoring uh, an exec, so doing some executive coaching, which is one of the things that I do. I was working with a lady who was very high up in her industry, who'd been very successful in her industry, was a leading figure, and yet she had almost burnt herself out. She'd been working horrendous hours, and it got to the point that she wasn't happy in her role, but in the end she got let go by the company, not because she did anything wrong, but because the company was going through changes and they decided not to renew her contract. Now, that had a couple of different effects. One effect was that she had a massive confidence crisis. And we talked through that for a long period of time. We tried to help her with that, of course. But then we got to the heart of what was really going on and what was she was fearing during this period where she'd left one job and was then looking or thinking about going back into the industry in a new role well, she had this fear that having had burnout, having almost burnt herself out through working crazy hours and giving way more than the company really asked for, because she was a self-conscious, a conscientious rather, uh, exec who prided herself on delivering excellent work. And because she had this slight confidence crisis, she felt the need to continue to deliver or over-deliver on what she was doing every week. And that meant more and more hours. It meant delivering over and above what was considered to be the norm. Now, when we start thinking about what she's gonna do next, she has this confidence crisis because someone's just let her go from this job. She's starting to think, well, maybe I'm not good enough anymore. She's having this imposter syndrome where she's questioning her own abilities, but she's also starting to think about why these things might be happening. Did she do something wrong? Do people not like her? She started to question her own character and personality. What are the reasons when she originally thought she was so good at her job that a company like that have just decided to let her go? Now, one of the things that we uncovered, and this is where the relevance, I think, comes in and what today's Formula One Grand Prix with McLaren's struggles really made me think of, was we started to uncover some of the symptoms of her problems. So her symptoms were... She'd got to the point of almost burnout because she'd been working crazy hours, feeling a a need and a requirement, a necessity to keep continually over delivering, working till 10 o'clock at night to make sure that she could fix all of the problems in her part of the business. She almost didn't trust anybody else to be able to do it. And so she decided to take it all on herself and just kept going and going and going until it caused her some physical and mental problems, just because of the work ethic she felt obliged to give. She started to question her own ability. She started to question her own character. She started to question whether she went back into that industry or not after having lost that job. Did she want to go back into a job which was almost certainly going to be pretty much the same? And of course, when you start to break that down, it's the same as a Formula One car. What she was dealing with or suffering with was a series of symptoms. They were symptoms that were working long hours late into the night, always answering an email no matter what time it came in, always picking up the phone when someone rang her and not giving herself some limits, some boundaries between work and personal life. And when we started to look at those symptoms that all of a sudden were starting to cause her problems in her life, we started to look at what might lie behind them. And this was what much of the work that I did with her was about. Not dealing with the symptoms. The symptoms, she's just working because she feels a need to continue working. She feels a need to continually over-deliver and protect her status or status within the industry. She felt a need to make sure that everybody could see that she was the best or she was good at her job but when you start to uncover what lies beneath that symptom, what's at the heart of that problem, what's the root cause of that, it was a confidence crisis. It was a, an issue of self-belief. There was an underlying problem where she never quite felt like she was enough in that industry. She never felt like others believed that she was enough. She felt she had to overprove herself all of the time, perhaps because she was a woman in a male-dominated world. But the point was, the ultimate problem, the problem at the heart of all of that was this feeling of not being enough. It was that feeling of not having enough self belief. And that translated into all of these different symptoms as she tried to overcompensate for this underlying issue that she had. Dealing with the crux of the problem, getting to the root cause, is the only place you're going to eventually fix the problems. The symptoms will keep coming unless you address the root cause. And so one of the things that we were able to start doing was work with her to try and address that, to try and put some things in place that would might start to build her self-confidence, to give her back the self-belief that she definitely used to have once upon a time. There was a lot of evidence that we were able to dredge up data, if you like, that would back up the idea that she was incredibly good at her job that the people around her that worked with her knew she was incredibly good at her job. And so the problem wasn't really that anybody else questioned whether she was good enough, it was that she didn't believe she was good enough. So when we start to address that, look at that data, look at that evidence, build a picture that can back up the idea that she was good enough, and over time continually sort of put affirmations in place that would reinforce that idea, that she could rebuild her self-belief. Of course, that then gets to the point where she goes back to a new company. She doesn't feel the need to constantly have to prove herself. And as a result, she's able to put very clear boundaries between work life and personal life, and a much better work-life balance as a result. But there was never going to be any sense in just treating the symptom. Just telling her to stop work at 6 p.m. rather than go until 10 p.m. was never going to really work because that might work for some period of time. But at some point, that self-doubt is going to creep back in. And when someone emails her at 8 p.m., she's going to have to feel like she's got to respond to overcome the the, the issues of lack of self-belief and self-doubt and to prove her worth to an external source, to other people in the business. The point I'm trying to make is the symptoms show up for all of us in all types of problem, in all types of areas of our life. We have symptoms. They can show up as issues and they can be physical, they can be mental, they can be professional or personal. They show up in all different types of situations all of the time. And quite frankly, just like in a Formula One team over the course of a session, sometimes we just have to deal with the symptoms in the moment. We have to treat the symptom. We have to put a band-aid on a cut. We have to stop ourselves from doing something that is causing us a little bit of self-harm or causing us some sense of destruction. But at some points, when we have a little bit more freedom and space around us, we have to have a delve in, a deep dive into what lies beneath all of these symptoms that continually keep showing up in our lives. There is always something at the root cause of it. If somebody in your life is suddenly feeling a little bit or seeming a bit short-tempered, seeming a little bit short with you or angry with you or getting cross with you on a much more frequent basis, we've all been there where our partners just seem a little bit more irrational. I'm sure we've all done it ourselves. There's almost always something lying beneath that, which is the root cause, when our children are struggling with something or shout back and slam doors as their teenagers storming off to their room? What is it that's behind those things? And it's those questions that you have to start asking yourselves. In exactly the same way that a Formula One team has to start asking itself, what was at the root cause of the symptoms we found over the course of this weekend? Is there something fundamental on our car that needs addressing? And can we make some changes? Can we tweak a design here or there? Can we come up with some new suspension layouts, different geometry? Is it something fundamental in the design of our car that's leading to all of these symptoms? The same applies to us. Is there something fundamental inside us, a problem or a situation that might've been bubbling away over time that we haven't dealt with, that's now showing up in these various symptoms that we might be now portraying? It's a good exercise to go through for yourselves, of course. Whenever you start to notice signs of these symptoms, recurring symptoms especially, ask yourself the question, why is it happening? Is there something deeper down that's that's lying beneath it? But even more helpful or even easier to be helpful is perhaps with the people around you, the people closest to you. Because quite often it's so much easier for the people around you to see what's going on in your life than it is for you when you're in the heart of it our friends, our family members start to notice changes within us, sometimes quicker than we do. And if they are able to ask those questions, what could be lying behind this? This is out of character for this person. Is there something deeper going on? What's at the root cause of it? We've got a much better chance of finding a solution that's not just a band-aid, but something far more long-term that can really help to transform a life. In Formula One terms, Finding a fundamental root cause can literally transform the fortunes of a Formula One team. And it may not be an overnight fix. Changing an anti roll bar can be done in five minutes. Changing something baked in into the fundamental geometry of a chassis, for example, is not the work of five minutes. But you've got to ask yourself is this a deep enough problem? Is it a big enough problem? Is it a problem that's going to continually keep recurring and showing up in different ways? And if it is, Maybe, even though it's not a five minute fix, it might be worth putting in the time, the effort, and the resource to really understand it and get to the bottom of it, because that's how we're going to get closer to the ultimate success that we crave. Okay, now I just wanted to bring in one of your questions, because many of you, and I'm truly grateful for this, have sent me either questions or comments about the podcast topics that you're either having difficulties with at work, perhaps, or in your personal lives that you'd like some help with, or you'd like me to discuss. And somebody called Callum, you know who you are, thank you for your message, sent me a lovely email, a really long and detailed email about a situation that he's facing at work. Callum uh, works on a biomass plant. He's a technician. He says they are two types of people that work in his part of the business. He's a technician, and then they have the operators, who are kind of classed as the site labourers. So two different jobs. And he says there's a a total disconnect between the two. He said quite often the operators or the labourers feel hard done by, and they feel like they do way more work than the technicians, which is what Callum is. What Callum describes in his long email is that a lot of the time the technicians' work is spent sat in front of a screen, sort of monitoring systems around the biomass plant. That's how he has to do his job. But quite often, the operators or the laborers don't have an appreciation for exactly what's involved in the technician's job. And it causes this kind of almost rivalry. It causes this problem between the two, where one feels hard done by, one feels like the other's lazy or not doing enough. And what Callum goes on to describe was that the other day, he was on a night shift. And he says he had an issue uh, where I came to a head with an operator who'd been asked to fill the diesel cans. And he replied uh, by saying that that's a day shift, uh, day shift job. Um, did it with a lot of attitude. And he said, I'm on night shift. That should have been done by the day shift. I'm not doing it. He said he absolutely point blank refused to fill the diesel can, even though it was his job. And it caused this big problem because Callan, the technician, had to explain that that is part of the labourer's job. Yes, the day shift didn't get it done, so that means the night shift have to come on and do it. We've all been in situations like this, whether it's our children refusing to do things because they don't feel like it's their turn, because it should have been their brother or their sister. I get it in my own house all of the time. She did it last time. I did it last time. Whatever. I know the script. I know how it goes. Now, what Callum goes on to say is that this is a bigger problem. This is a, an ongoing problem. It's not just between this one guy and him. This is a problem within these sectors of the business that's quite common. And it's rearing its ugly head more and more and more. And he's asked for advice. He's asked us to discuss it and see if I had any thoughts on, on the problem and what any potential solution would be. How do you deal with somebody who's just not prepared to do their job because they don't think it's their job? They don't feel like everyone else is pulling their weight. And what I said to Callum, and I think the reason I'm bringing this up now is because I think it ties in really nicely with what we've just talked about in the first part of this podcast. This idea that the symptom, and that's exactly what this is, what Callum's experienced is a symptom of something greater. This little head-to-head that happened the other night, that's not isolated, that's happening more and more. This feeling of, I guess, disgruntlement between the two different types of job role in this one particular part of the plant is a symptom. And what I've said to Callum is, and this is, again, part of the same advice that I've given you earlier on in terms of any problems that are showing up like this in your life, is you've got to ask the question, what's at the heart of it? if that's a symptom that keeps cropping up, that's recurring, what is the real problem? And it could be, and I haven't got enough details and I've gone back to Callum and we're discussing it on email, but it could be that there's a communication problem in that the operators or the labourers just haven't ever been communicated the job role of the technician properly and perhaps vice versa. Perhaps there's a misunderstanding between the two different types of job role in this business, where one thinks that the other's lazy. One thinks they don't do anything because they're sitting at a computer or staring at a screen on a phone. You can be very busy and staring at a screen if that's your job, if that's part of what makes up the tasks that you have to do. But of course, if there's no understanding or appreciation of what that is, It might show up in these kind of symptoms where people get frustrated with others because they might be doing hard physical labour and someone else is literally sitting at a computer stroking keys. One feels like hard work. The other feels really quite easy to somebody who doesn't have an appreciation of the roles and responsibilities within the company. But both might be absolutely key processes to the overall system working. I'm sure they are. And that is my biggest advice here. Ask the questions, what's at the very heart of this? Is this something that needs communicating from a management level so that everybody has an understanding of what everybody's roles are? Or is there some way that you can tap into the motivations of this guy or his colleagues, the operators, the the labourers, tap into what is it they're there for? Why are they doing that job? you know, is there something that you can tap into that might trigger an emotional response in a positive way in which you can all work together to get closer to some kind of goal? I.e., is there a bonus, for example, by you all hitting a target? And if you work together, you'll all hit that target quicker, as an example. I don't know if there is. But is there something like that where you can start to work together, explain your roles and responsibilities, Explain how you can help that person and potentially how they can help you. By working together, you might get through it early. You might get finished earlier. You might hit your targets quicker. You might get your bonus. Whatever it might be, whatever it might mean for you and the person, try and tap into or find out what the motivations are. Maybe their biggest motivation is money. So a bonus, if that's what you're entitled to by hitting a target, of course, would be a great motivator. Maybe they desperately want to get away from work and get home to see their kids. So by working together, could you finish early? Could you get away earlier? Without knowing enough details specifically of that particular problem, of course I can't help too much in this sense, but I am talking to Callum away from this on email. My point is though, there's always something lying beneath the symptom. The fact that this came to a head, the fact that there's frustrations that have been building between the two different roles within that part of the business is symptomatic of some deeper problem. It could be a communication problem. It could be a management problem. It could be something even deeper than that. Something long and deep-rooted that's been bubbling for a long, long time, yet never addressed. Maybe no one's ever asked that question, what's at the heart of all these symptoms? the quicker you can ask those questions, the more regularly you can ask those questions, and the more openly you can discuss the answers to those questions, the easier you're going to find it to get to the very crux of the problem and therefore find a solution that works. Now, I just need to say a big thank you as we're around halfway through. A massive thank you again to everybody for listening, for joining. If you haven't yet uh, found it, the videos of these podcasts, I've now put on their own YouTube channel. So I've just started it. There's a YouTube channel called Pit Lane Life Lessons. If you're into watching the podcast rather than just listening, that's where you can find it. Previously, I was putting them on my main channel, but I've decided to separate the two and keep the other one for more Formula One stuff, which, by the way, is coming back. Monday nights. my post-Grand Prix debrief, if you like. My Ask Elvis live sessions that I always used to do on a Monday night are coming back and they will be back this week on Monday night, which for me is tomorrow after today's Bahrain Grand Prix. That will be on my main channel. Keep an eye on my socials and I will let you know about all of those, give you links and everything else. But it'll be 9pm UK time and that will be happening every time there's a Grand Prix. I'd love to see you there. Another quick reminder just to give me a like or a follow, a rating, review, tell your friends, share this podcast around. Please, 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 it would mean the world to me. I'm trying to grow this podcast and it is growing, but it's growing at quite a slow rate. And I'd really love to accelerate that. And to do that, I need your help. So anything you can do, pop it in your WhatsApp groups, tell your friends, put it on your social media, tag me in any of those shares and I will help by retweeting or resharing myself if I can. Anything you can do to grow this community would mean the world to me and I'll be very, very grateful. So thank you in advance for that. Now, something else that I observed during today 's Grand Prix, of course, we had a couple of rookies making their debuts at the Bahrain Grand Prix, and I spotted at one point before the race uh, Lewis Hamilton, a seven time world champion, an icon of this sport, one of well the most successful driver in the history of Formula One, going up to Oscar Piastri, a guy who was making his debut, a young up-and-coming racing driver. I saw Lewis Hamilton speaking to Oscar Piastri, just wishing him luck, giving him some early support ahead of his first race. And I'm sure, from what I watch it, I couldn't see what was being said, but I saw in the background what that meant to a young Oscar Piastri. A young guy who must have been full of nerves, full of trepidation, He would have been questioning, I have no doubt, his own ability. He would have been filled with imposter syndrome. He's sitting on a grid surrounded by multiple world champions, people with an infinite amount more experience than him. The kind of people like Lewis Hamilton who he would have idolized growing up, who he would have been watching on television while he's sitting there with his parents when he was younger, and there he is on the same grid as him. The fact that Lewis, and perhaps others did it as well, went to say hello, to wish him luck, to give him some words of encouragement or advice, a little bit of moral support if nothing else, must have gone a huge way to making him feel more secure, to making him feel more settled, to making him feel welcome on what must be a really intimidating grid I know that this kind of thing has happened in the past. I know for a fact that when I first got my job in Formula One, and I think I've said this on this podcast a long, long time ago, on my very first day, when I went to the test, I was on the the test team at McLaren as this young mechanic. I didn't know anybody on the team, and on my very first day, at the end of that day, I went over to the hospitality area to get my dinner. It was a buffet service. And when I got my plate of food, I turned around and it seemed like everybody else was just, they knew each other. They were familiar, of course, which is exactly what they were. It felt like there were little cliques all around this hospitality area where people were sat together. The table that had the mechanics on that I'd been working with was completely full. So there was no space to sit there. And I didn't know anybody else. And so in that moment, I chose to go and sit on my own on a table that had nobody else sat there. I felt exposed. I felt completely on a pedestal where I imagined everybody else was looking at me, was talking about me. I imagined that everybody was saying, what on earth is this kid doing here? Who is this guy? This guy has never worked in Formula One before. Who on earth does he think he is? How on earth did he get this job? Those were the kind of thoughts that were running through my mind. It didn't matter that I had come up through the junior categories, I'd been very successful, I had, uh, you know, got there on merit. But you don't think those things in the moment. I was thinking the opposite, a little bit like what we talked about earlier on. You start to question your own ability and your own self-importance, your own... You you start to have self-doubt creep in. And all of the things that got you there on merit to the top table in motorsport... Something I'd dreamt of for years went out the window in that moment and I felt vulnerable and exposed while I sat on this table with my plate of food all on my own. After a few moments, somebody came and sat next to me and it wasn't another mechanic. It wasn't one of the engineers. It was David Coulthard. It was our driver. It was the guy that just a few weeks earlier I had idolised myself. I'd been watching on television in awe. He was a superstar of this sport one of the most famous names in the business. And yet here he was coming to sit next to me at dinner. He could have sat anywhere. There were people with his own engineers, tables with his own engineers, his own mechanics sat on tables on the other side of the room. But he didn't go and sit with those. He came and sat with me. And what we sat and chatted about for a few minutes when he first sat down was just me. I had plenty of questions I desperately wanted to ask him as a fan, but he spent the first 10 minutes just asking about me. He wasn't asking about my qualifications as a mechanic. He wasn't asking me what I'd done before or what experience I had. He was asking about me, the person. He was trying to understand who I was, asking about my family, my friends. He was asking about my hobbies, what music I liked, whether I liked football. He was asking all sorts of personal questions, getting to know me. And after a few moments, I turned to DC and I said, listen, mate, first of all, thank you for coming to sit with me because I felt like a right loner for a few minutes. But I said, why did you come and sit with me? There are people all over this room who you know that you work with and have worked with for years, that you're in, you know, best friends with, that you're very, very familiar and comfortable with. And he said, that's exactly why I came and sat with you. I was going to do the Scottish accent there, but it's probably better for all of us that I didn't. <laughs> He said, I came and sat with you because I don't know you. And he said, you're my teammate. He said, I can see this is your first day. You're about to embark on a career in Formula One, which is a big deal. And yet nobody around this room is talking you through it, is sitting there putting an arm around you, around your shoulder, making you feel welcome and comfortable. And of course, they had done that all day. I'd felt very comfortable all day long. I've been working with colleagues who'd made me feel completely welcome. But in that moment when I had to sit on my own, I felt completely exposed and DC coming over to give me a little bit of support was huge for me. I mean, massive, not only because he took the time to try to learn a little bit more about me, to get to understand me and know me more, but just the very fact that he came and sat with me. That immediately allayed a lot of my fears of my nerves. And I imagine that's exactly what Lewis Hamilton would have done today for Oscar Piastri in those moments before he set about entering his first Grand Prix. Probably one of the most terrifying moments of his life. The presence of somebody with vast experience, somebody who is very well known in the business, someone who has accolades to their name, that has worked their way up, that is an industry leader that's recognised as an industry leader, that's the gold standard in terms of Lewis Hamilton's case. In my case at McLaren, in that moment, DC was the most senior, he was the most respected, he was an idol of mine. And yet he came and sat on a table next to me and started asking me whether I had brothers or sisters and what they were like the impact of that was enormous. In the moment, it relaxed me. It settled me. But in the moment, it also made me feel part of the team. Because when he said that he was coming to speak to me purely because he didn't know me, he used the words, and I've said this before, he used the words, you're my teammate, and yet I don't know you yet. And when he called me his teammate, of course the emotional response inside me was just overwhelming. My heart filled, my chest puffed out, the pride that that instilled in me. Any fears about imposter syndrome or not feeling good enough to be part of this iconic McLaren team, in that moment, began to dissolve away. Because David Coulthard had just called me his teammate. He'd had a conversation with me about my personal life, about my mum and dad. I talked about his brothers. I talked about his family. We talked about the kind of things that two old friends have a conversation about, and that relaxed me no end. Now, that conversation I had with DC literally changed my life at McLaren because that idea that he felt the need to come and get to know me because I was his teammate... He wanted to put trust in me. The guy that was going to be at some point contributing to the car that he'd be sat in doing 200 miles an hour, he needed to know who I was. He needed to know that he could trust me. And if he trusted me, that gave me an enormous sense of pride. But the very fact that he decided that was important changed the way I looked at teamwork as well because it's exactly the same for any of us. The people around us in our teams are not just our teammates. They're not just our colleagues, but we have to find a way to build trust in those people. And the way we do that is by getting to know them. It's by going out of our way to give them a little bit of extra support of understanding. It's going up to them in a moment that they might be struggling in on their first day, like DC did for me, like Lewis Hamilton did for Oscar Piastri today. Going up to somebody in your office and giving them a little bit of support, just asking a little bit about them, getting to know them just a little bit with a few off-the-cuff, relaxed questions can have an enormous impact. And what I suggest and would recommend all of you think about doing is trying to do that, trying to play that forward for other people around you. You can do it with people in your office, the youngsters that are just starting, the interns. Go and spend five minutes with them, giving them a little bit of a tour, giving them a guided lowdown on what the office is like, who the people are that they're working with. Get to know them, get a little bit of an understanding of who the person is behind the job title. By doing those things, you relax the person, you make them feel welcome in that team environment, but you also end up changing the way that they view the team that they're in. Because you might have been vulnerable and given a bit of extra information out about yourself that you didn't have to do. Talking about your friends, your family, your home life. You don't have to do that. But imagine the impact that can have on somebody who is terrified to be there on their first day you can do the same kinds of things on social media. If you see somebody struggling and you start to see a series of tweets that look out of character for somebody that you follow, if they start to give you a little bit of concern about that person's mental well-being, send them a nice message. Send them a DM. Ask them if they're okay. Ask them if they want to have a a chat about life in general. These kind of little detail, these little things are, it's amazing how far they can go. The same thing with people in your friend group, with family members even, talking about things that are not part of the normally accepted conversation structures. Friends might, depending on your level of friend that you're talking about, you might want to go outside of your comfort zone to talk about something that makes you a little bit more vulnerable, but puts them in a position of being much more relaxed, of being much more comfortable. Those little details can make an enormous difference. And I would strongly urge you and recommend you to think about the people, particularly in a working environment, particularly the youngsters if you're more experienced, the people around you that might be starting out on a career that you have spent years already working your way through the system. You know the hacks, you know the tips and the tricks, you know how the office works and who the people are that they need to impress. They know the character traits of the people inside your business and you can pass on that information give them a little step up. But by giving them those details and having those conversations, it transforms or it can transform the way that person perceives you, but also the entire team around them. Oscar Piastri ended up having an absolute disastrous debut in his Formula One career today. But that moment beforehand where Lewis Hamilton went up and spoke to him and gave him some messages, some words of support and encouragement, I have no doubt will stick with him forever. I'm sure that Oscar Piastri will have a long and successful career ahead of him. And probably when he is one of the leading members of this sport, when he is one of the most experienced players on the grid in some years to come, he may well just pass that on to some young rookie who's facing the same situation that he faced today. And it will be powerful because if it comes from somebody who has stature and experience in that sport, who does not need to give up their time to go and see a young rookie, it means so much more. That's why David Coulthard coming to see me was so powerful, because he didn't need to do that. He could have quite easily taken the easy option and gone to sit with people he knew, but he didn't. He went out of his way to find me, to come and see me and to get to know me a little bit more. Lewis Hamilton did that today, and I have no doubt it will rest with Oscar Piastri Forever. And we can do similar things. It's talking about taking a tiny bit of effort out of our day, doing something that may not be required of us, may not be part of our job description. We may well feel on some days that we're way above this now. I've been doing this for 20 years. I don't need to go and speak to the intern. But what if you did? What impact would it have on that one person's life? And then when that person progresses through the company and pays it forward. Starts that same process for other people as they come into the business. How could that transform over time a whole series of people, a company, an industry? A little bit of kindness and support, a little bit of empathy. Taking a tiny moment out of your day to show some support to somebody who you think could be struggling is massive makes a huge, huge difference, especially if you are one of the experienced people in your world. Right, I want to say an enormous thank you to all of you once again. So many people sent me messages over the course of this week. Uh, Lots of you sent me messages on social media and tagged me in those, so thank you very much. Uh, I want to take one just very quickly as an idea, just to give you an example. Uh, This one from the Ishin Chok. Uh, says loving the podcast being back two cracking episodes so far I'd actually meant to message you a few weeks back asking when you were coming back I'm missing them but it never. But I never got round to it. Keep up the good work. Look forward to the new book. He says, just a bit of trivia. Most of the time, I'm listening to your amazing podcast whilst walking across Sydney Harbour Bridge, all the way over in Australia. So thank you so much. And so many of you message me from all across the world, telling me what you're doing whilst listening to this. Whether it's your drive to walk, to work, whether you're walking the dogs, whether you're in the gym, people are putting this podcast on whilst they're cooking at home. I love it. I love hearing from you. So thank you. Uh, there were many people, I I haven't got time to call everybody out, but I really want to say thank you to Felix. Uh, He sent me an incredibly long message on Twitter. Felix, uh, you know who you are and I have responded to Felix individually, but I want to say a special thank you because it was a very heartfelt message, um, really from his heart uh, about some of the things that he'd been struggling with and how the podcast had helped him. And that's what this podcast is literally all about. And I want to hear from you if you are struggling with anything, if you've got challenges in your life, Life, either professional or personal, that you think my experience from the Formula One world might be able to help with. I spend my days today mentoring and coaching execs and others in the business world. I consult with some of the world's biggest companies. I go and speak at events to big companies about how to overcome the challenges they face by thinking more like a Formula One team. This podcast came from that world where I realized that this information, this advice, the learnings that I've been privileged enough to experience are not just learnings that can benefit great big corporate organizations. They can benefit every single one of us. They can benefit you and I in our daily lives by thinking more along the lines of an F1 team. And that is where the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast came from. So if it's helping you, I want to know about it. If you feel like it might be able to help you with a problem you've got or a challenge you're facing, I want to hear about that too. I may not be able to help, but I will always do my very best to respond and to, at the very least, show you some love and support. If you're willing to take the time to message me, I will always commit to taking the time to at least acknowledge and hopefully message you back in the best way that I can. Please keep those messages coming. Please keep the sharing that you do around this podcast coming as well. If you've got ideas, comments, questions, anything that you'd like me to cover in the podcast, let me know that as well. And I will do my very best over the coming episodes to meet as many of those ideas and conversation topics as we possibly can. Thank you so, so, so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful week. Formula One is back. Don't forget, you can see me tomorrow night. That's Monday night, live on my YouTube channel. It's Mark Priestley F1 Elvis. Just search on YouTube for that and you'll find it. If you can't get there live, of course, you can go back and look. Well, we'll discuss everything that happened over the course of the weekend. I will do my best to answer your Formula One specific questions and we'll have a great time chatting about Formula One now that the season is underway again. I'm excited. I hope you are too. Have a wonderful week and don't forget this. Do the right things. Do the things right.